Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 238 of Forgotten Classics, where we will finish up Mrs. Appleyard's year. But first, the podcast highlight. This one is called Documents That Changed the World. Joe Janes is an associate professor at the University of Washington Information School. And like a lot of us, he liked listening to the BBC podcast, History of the World in 100 Objects. And according to an article I found about him at Washington University's website, which I will link to, basically he started thinking about the fact that a lot of the time what reflects the big changes in history is a particular document. And of course, we can think of the Rosetta Stone. That's when he did something on the Magna Carta. He has not. But he's found a lot of different documents that he's been able to use as a springboard, in a way, to talk about how documentation shows history and also what it means, what its significance is, I guess we would say, to the history of our time. For instance, the very first episode was Barack Obama's birth certificate. And he used that to talk about what does an authentic document mean, or the authentication of a document, I guess you'd say. And how long have birth certificates been around? And what do they mean? And what will we do with them in the future? Well, you get the idea. Joe Janes has done 25 of these so far, and they come out periodically. If you look at it, sometimes it's two or three a month, sometimes it's two or three months in between, but it doesn't matter. They're always entertaining. They go between, oh, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes long, depending on the subject, and he has covered all this stuff. The Book of Mormon, the X-Ray, the Riot Act, because yes, there was a Riot Act, and I love that, actually. I also already knew about that. But I like hearing what he has to say about it. The Zapruder film, if that's how you say the guy's name, the poor guy who was filming Kennedy and then his film has been analyzed to death. The AIDS quilt, the internet protocol, which, by the way, I happen to know somebody or have met them, knew them for a while, who actually works on that kind of thing, which is crazy interesting. The Gregorian calendar, Mao's little red book, Pope Benedict's resignation, And all these things, as you can see, they all provide a way to leap off into thinking about larger areas, how they affect our lives. And he does it all in a really great way. He's not casting judgment on anyone. So if one of these things you kind of raised your eyebrows and went, I don't know, he's just talking about the thing itself. It's great. You're going to love it. Well, at least I love it. So I hope you love it. Anyway give it a try. Now, back to Mrs. Appleyard's year for the last time. And I have to say, it makes me kind of sad. I picked up the book to start recording, and I realized I was kind of relaxing while I read it. A lot of the things I read, I'm not relaxed all the time because I'm having to think about what I'm reading in a more conscious way. And I don't know what it says about Mrs. Appleyard's year that I enjoy it just as much when I'm reading it. I obviously relax just as much when I'm reading it as when I'm proofing it and listening to it. There's something about it that I just really love. I think these two months 
are really so typical and such a good ending for the book because not only do they talk about some of the things that you expect for these months, but she, Louise Andrews Kent, the author, keys off of the months in ways that I didn't expect, partly because it was written so long ago, partly because I don't live in the Northeast, and partly just because I don't think like Mrs. Appleyard, and I kind of wish I did. That's how much I love her. I wish I was Mrs. Appleyard. (laughs) Well, let's see how you feel about it. Come on, let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Mrs. Appleyard's Year by Louise Andrews Kent November 1. Hidden Treasure 2. Thanksgiving 1. Somehow, the first cold days whenever they come always catch Mrs. Appleyard unawares. In spite of past experiences, the ground always manages to harden up before she gets all the narcissus bulbs planted. She wakes in that chilly hour before dawn and remembers that the radiator of the car has not had its winter cocktail. Threatening flakes of snow fly through the air before she recalls that there are such things as overshoes. She has always been mildly resentful of the fact that just when she would really like to start hibernating, she has to indulge in the alert sport of hunting up the winter things. Of course, Mrs. Appleyard knows that there are people who file away the flotsam and jetsam left from last winter as carefully as if these interesting prizes were to be collected in the Athenium. At least, she has heard so. She has not, as a matter of fact, ever actually penetrated into one of these impeccable attics where the family property is stored in immaculate boxes of uniform size, classified, card-cataloged, shelf-listed, cross-indexed, and legibly labeled. When any housekeeper tells about an attic like that, Mrs. Appleyard just takes it on faith. She simply pities anyone for such a monotonous arrangement. For after the first inertia is overcome and she realizes that there is no use thinking that she can spend the winter before the fire pretending she is reading Peep's diary, she finds no occupation more thrilling than raising the family property from its summer slumber. Each bundle is a mystery in itself. Why did she think on that hot and steaming morning last June that she would recognize Stan's hockey pads simply by the feel of the parcel and the fact that it was in a paper decorated with Orphan Annie's unchanging countenance. Mr. Appleyard, she knew, liked the transcript in those happy days when there was a transcript, or the times for his property, asserting (laughs) that they were better. That was why, a good many years ago, she thought that a certain flabby package must belong to him. It did, in fact, bear his initials in smeared red crayon. This was a thoughtful, if misleading, provision. When a small scarlet zipper suit slid out, she realized that Sally and Samuel began with the same letter and regretfully relinquished the idea of dressing Mr. Appleyard up as a miniature Santa Claus. A minor disappointment was the idea that the bundle tastefully gift-wrapped in an episode of The Life of Terry and the Pirates might contain something for her own shivering form and the subsequent discovery that a particular sun-backed bathing suit of Cicely's was all, absolutely all. The dark closet under the stairs always used to yield a rich harvest, 
Mittens in groups of three, a plaid muffler, not stolen, but something she had certainly never seen before, just a tribute to her personal magnetism, probably. Then there was that splendid, indeed almost unique, collection of overshoes, no two of the same size, shape, or color. Would Henry Ford like them for his Museum of Transportation? Mrs. Appleyard wondered. Or would he prefer that particularly well-ventilated pair of rubber boots? The dark closet was a kind of apple yard calendar. You could always tell what time of year it was and how old the children were by taking soundings in it. Baseball gloves, tennis rackets, footballs, skates marked the changing seasons. The children who had once shoved rubber lambs and fire engines into it had gone now, leaving ski poles and photographic enlargers behind them. Their names were on the labels under the four hooks on the door. Hughes was barely legible. Mrs. Appleyard could remember the small beaver cap with the ear lappets hanging there, and his first football helmet, and the Boy Scout hat, and the first gray hat like Mr. Appleyard's worn to dancing school, under protest, of course. The next hook was Cicely's. It used to have a brown velvet bonnet with a lace frill and mink fur hanging on it. Later, a blue sailor's cap with HMS Valiant on the ribbon. Then, a scarlet beret from Paris. On her visit this year, a wisp of gray fur and a velvet strap. This was the hat Cicely left in the movies. She knew she must have dropped it beside her seat on the aisle. She has developed this habit of dropping things in the movies from her dear mother. Mr. Appleyard has often had occasion to mention this trait. The usher went hunting for the hat with his flashlight, but he came back and announced in the pleased way that ushers have under these circumstances that there was no hat anywhere near the aisle seat. Cicely has also inherited a certain firmness of character, probably from her father. Mr. Appleyard is the man who single-handed made a certain restaurant restore the ancient custom of serving a piece of cheese with an eclair. His letters make senators shake in their shoes. He is happiest when conducting a vendetta with the railroad or the telephone company. The remarks he has made about Lyle Socks make manufacturers toss sleeplessly upon their beds at dawn. Cicely went down the aisle herself the second time, the usher complete with flashlight attending. There it is, she said, pointing six rows ahead. I saw that before, announced to the usher in a hoarse whisper that drowned the voices on the screen. It's only a piece of dust. He may have been right, but anyway, Cicely wore it home. Mrs. Appleyard likes to think over the different phases of life in the dark closet. Once she put a bag of bananas there to ripen for Mr. Appleyard, who feels strongly about bananas. He thinks they ought to be ripened on the decks of schooners. No banana, he says, ought to know there is such a thing as ice in the world. Not having a schooner, Mrs. Appleyard has had satisfactory results with the dark closet. Sometimes Mr. Appleyard has said that one of its products tasted almost like a Vermont banana. It seems they grew a very fine type of banana in this remarkable state when Mr. Appleyard was a boy. Unfortunately, in dealing with this particular batch, Mrs. Appleyard let two weeks elapse. No bananas, even in Vermont, can ever have been riper. Mr. Appleyard was very nice about it. All he said was, 
If we got a bunch of deck ripes and hung them in the kitchen, you wouldn't forget them. I will buy a schooner and moor it in the bird bath, Mrs. Appleyard said. There is not much in the closet now but electric light bulbs and cameras and flower vases, but there are other well-stuffed places in the house. There is the old cedar chest with its pungent-smelling blankets and sweaters. Is there a color in the world that the Appleyard children have not had in sweaters? Mrs. Appleyard, in looking over this rainbow before distributing it to people of the right size, decided that the only color lacking was that of mustard pickles. She found a silver porringer wrapped up in an orange sweater that had once been Sally's. The linen closet yielded four silver candlesticks. Mr. Appleyard says it's the first place a burglar would look. She says they were successfully hidden from her anyway. She thinks there may be something thrilling in the cellar, because there is no doubt that things move around in an uncanny way during the long, lonely summer days. It must be the heat, or the humidity, or something. Anyway, she sees no point in looking for Captain Kidd's hoard. She recommends hunting for the winter clothes and having some real fun. 2. Thanksgiving When Thanksgiving arrives, Mrs. Appleyard is always thankful. For a good many years, this has made her seem mildly eccentric, because for the most part, the holiday has seemed to mean a great deal of indigestion and a small amount of thankfulness. The more people had, the less grateful they seemed. The pilgrims were appreciative of a few squashes and pumpkins, grateful for the fact that their families and friends had not all died of plague and hunger, for their pleasant social relations with their red-skinned neighbors, for shelter, such as it was, from the ferocity of winter, for freedom to worship in their own way, and to make anyone who didn't very uncomfortable. For a good many years, freedom, food, and shelter have been considered too much a matter of course to make much fuss over. It needed something really significant, such as an unexpected Picasso, (laughs) what other kind is there, or a new speedboat to arouse much enthusiasm. Lately, Mrs. Appleyard's attitude has become fashionable again. It is like the contents of her attic. No Appleyard ever throws anything away. It was in an Appleyard medicine chest that a bottle was found labeled chamomile, I think. They know that if you keep a thing long enough, it comes back into fashion. What was junk to one generation is a priceless antique to the next but one. Just now, the pilgrim heritage of thankfulness simply for warmth and food and friends and freedom is being taken out of a good many mental attics, dusted, polished, and found to be a good piece of furniture. Mrs. Appleyard, though, was thankful all the time, not from any superior virtue or even foresight, but because she belonged to a class that was always grateful on Thanksgiving Day, the mothers of football players. By dinner time that day, in those happy regions where winter comes to the rescue, the season is over. The form of mayhem called hockey has not started, so many boys still have their front teeth. Mothers who sit down with their families intact are as thankful to Providence as any pioneer woman who could look around her table and see her family clothed, fed, and miraculously preserved from sickness and savages. There is a good deal of Spartan spirit in the mothers of football heroes, and just as much, more perhaps, in the mothers of those whose names and faces never occupy any space in the headlines. Probably there is not one woman who does not inwardly dread every play in which her son takes part. 
not one who sees a boy knocked out on the field without thinking first, is it Bill? And then, if it is some other woman's son, how can she stand it? Yet from the day that her boy goes into his first game, a small lumpy figure, all shoulder pads, his head almost swallowed in a cavernous helmet, his legs like pipe stems in enormous boots, she keeps a calm face. Her attitude is always, with your shield or upon it. It is all she can do for him. Both the Appleyard boys had come through without much damage. There was that concussion of Hughes, of course, and his shoulder. Stan emerged from his education with nothing worse than a collarbone that had been broken and very well mended. Stan always claimed that football was a quiet, safe game. The time he broke his leg, he was playing ping-pong. Stan was too light to play football in college, a circumstance that gave his mother a warm glow of pleasure every time she thought of it. Hugh played. He was only a third-string end, but Mrs. Appleyard learned two plays— Mother's skull practice was a Sunday afternoon diversion in which the right end was supposed to catch a pass. Generally, he didn't because of what Mrs. Appleyard could only interpret as personal spite on the part of the other team. The other men on the field, except the officials in those ridiculous white rompers, always looked a good deal alike. But Mr. and Mrs. Appleyard could always pick out Hugh. Mr. Appleyard recognized Hugh once just by the back of his hand on another boy's shoulder. Mrs. Appleyard knew him by the way he moved and the way he held his head. Mud on the football field, like other dirt, always stuck to Hugh, and if there was a torn jersey on the field, it was his. When he sat on the bench, she could tell him by the way his hair stuck up and by his eager but relaxed look. He was never strung tight like Stan." Mrs. Appleyard did not look at Hugh quite all the time when he was on the bench. Until he began to warm up with that long, springy stride of his, she could enjoy the game. She liked the singing and the antics of the cheerleaders and the large drum that made so little noise when they played Wintergreen for president. She liked the funny hats that the debutantes wore. It never occurred to her that if a debutante looked at her at all, she would think Mrs. Appleyard's last year's model was a funny hat. She liked the cheerful plaids of tweed jackets. She also enjoyed the wrinkled trench coats, whichever side out they were, and often wondered whether the occupants slept in them or whether there was a special beauty parlor in Harvard Square in which the coats were treated in a permanent wrinkling machine. She liked the small girls with bands on their teeth and pigtails sticking out under tartan caps. She liked their fathers, looking benevolent in the coonskin caps they had in college, she even, while Hugh was on the bench, enjoyed the play. There is something savage in us all. The savage streak in Mrs. Appleyard took pleasure in the tense moment just before the whistle blew, in the strong, swiftly moving bodies, in the thud of feet, and in the hoarse roar of the crowd. The sound of the ball being kicked, the neatness of blocking and interference, the patterns of red and blue on the green and striped field all helped to make her one of the crowd. When they yelled, so did she. <laughs> she did not mean to. She simply would discover to her surprise that her mouth was open and that her own voice was part of that great roar. Mr. Appleyard, of course, always knew what the shouting was for. His wife knew sometimes. At others, she forgot the game entirely and watched the crowd. 
the scarlet jackets and the blue coats, the bright mufflers and the brown fur, and the gray hats, the feathers and flowers, the pinkish tan of thousands of faces would all fade as the afternoon faded into a sort of misty purple. Drifts of thin blue smoke would blow across it. Flares from cigarette lighters shone through it like lighthouses in a fog. No, not lighthouses. That was a steady flash. These lights danced and flickered like fireflies. These lights danced and flickered like fireflies in a June mist. The sun would go down in a clear sky behind the stadium. They would all be in shadow, but up above them a silver plane would still gleam in the sunlight. People would watch it without thinking much about it, except that it was like a fish floating in blue water, a flying fish that had a crimson tail, which obligingly advised the hungry that there was food at somebody's hi-hat restaurant. Perhaps the spelling may have aroused hostility in some hearts other than Mrs. Appleyard's. But after all, quaintness in spelling, even in the air, is easier to forgive than some other air habits, and inattention was the harshest measure adopted toward it. The sound of its motor would be loud for a moment. Then the crowd would shout again, and the noise of the plane would be lost. It would be only a faint drone in the distance when the cheering was over. Suddenly, one of those eerie silences that are part of a big game would fall in the cheering crowd. It would last only a few seconds, but they would seem long, and while they dragged on, the shadows would grow deeper. It was in one of those silences that Mrs. Appleyard remembers seeing Hugh drop his blanket and run across the field. She saw his number jiggle up and down as he ran. It was a short number, not the long one he has now. Only football players had numbers then, and automobiles and telephones. Mrs. Appleyard never could remember the number of her car, but she has no difficulty with Hugh's draft number, 1893, nor stands, 2407. She woke the other morning, sure that she had just seen them both in large white letters on crimson. For her, the game began with Hugh running on. The figures on the field became only one figure, that of a small boy who always used to smile through the worst earaches, who had a hard time learning to whistle and do geometry, who listened seriously to other people's troubles and never told his own, whose socks had such awful holes in them and... Mr. Appleyard was thumping her on the shoulder. Did you see that? He caught a pass. Hugh caught a pass. Hugh caught a pass. She could hear his voice through the cheering. In spite of all that skull practice, Mrs. Appleyard had missed it. She did not dare admit it. Fortunately, everyone else in the stadium had seen it. They were still yelling, so she did not have to speak. She looked at the clock on the scoreboard. He's still all right. Only three more minutes to play. Three more minutes and next week's Thanksgiving. December 1. Cards of Cheer 2. Shopping Late 1. Mr. and Mrs. Appleyard belong to different schools of thought on the subject of Christmas cards. Mr. Appleyard likes to save them for one vast orgy of opening on Christmas Day. His wife likes to open them as they come, choosing the handsomest and the funniest to put on the living room mantelpiece, leaving the others lying around in piles wherever she happens to be when she was opening them. 
Mr. Appleyard slits envelopes neatly along the top and writes changes of addresses in the book that records Mrs. Appleyard's twenty-year struggle not to forget anyone. The battle has not been simplified by her habit of tearing envelopes open impetuously and hurling them into the wastebasket without paying attention to the back flap. Mrs. Appleyard gave up her career to marry Mr. Appleyard. It was that of a librarian. She often wonders why the libraries have not put up a statue to Mr. Appleyard. For dealing with the card situation, the following compromise has been worked out and without calling in the Supreme Court. Mr. Appleyard opens neatly all the cards that come to his office. It is he who looks over the list and says, The Nelsons sent us one. You still have time to get one in the mail. It is Mrs. Appleyard who, moaning low, repairs the error. In order to conduct such bookkeeping operations, the cards obviously have to be opened before Christmas. So Mrs. Appleyard has her wild way with those that come to the house, and Mr. Appleyard roots patiently among the various piles, seeing some cards eleven times, and others not at all. Mrs. Appleyard, however, undertakes not to throw any away, until she has collected them all in one box, and given that box into Mr. Appleyard's hands with a sworn affidavit that these are all. Mr. Appleyard was particularly touched when the cards were finally shucked and harvested this year to see how people, many of whom the Appleyards have never even met, remembered them. There were, for instance, the gentlemen who cleaned rugs. They had been only musical, mouth-filling names to the Appleyards. Mrs. Appleyard always thought of them as living their strenuous Armenian lives in an atmosphere of gasoline and camphor, sucking up dirt with enormous vacuum cleaners, playing hoses like fat pythons, swishing rugs up and down in vats of the purest and most ethereal subsuds, peering through microscopes in search of moth eggs, trapping the moths themselves with smiles, sweet cream, and honey weaving little palm leaves in spots used too frequently as ashtrays by members of the best families so often mentioned in the rug men's advertising. How often, on reading the reminder that it was time for her rugs to be cleaned, has Mrs. Appleyard's heart swelled with pride to think that her rugs would associate with the rugs of the most exclusive families, that they might even share the same soap suds? She has always felt it was very democratic of the rug people to give her ancient and weary floor coverings this social set forward. And how more than kind and condescending it was of them to sit right down in all that bustle and send the apple yards a card showing a blazing fireplace, stockings, scotty dogs, candles, and not a rug in sight. All at the cleaners, probably. It was genial of the lobster man to remember them, and with that handsome picture of a camel. Mr. Appleyard said he had never seen lobsters transported by camels, but he would like to. Natural history is reticent on this point, but he thinks perhaps camels may keep one compartment, especially for lobsters. He has also said, somewhat ungratefully, that with lobster prices what they are, he would have preferred a claw to a camel. Mrs. Appleyard suggested, in a tone of false meekness, that the Appleyards had not sent the lobster man any card, and had she better, etc., etc. Mr. Appleyard did not show any enthusiasm. He seems to suspect a selfish motive in these greetings. 
Mrs. Appleyard says that at Christmas time he should stifle such unworthy sentiments. She feels sure that when the garage man sent that spirited picture of a stagecoach, he had no recollection of having changed one very flat tire, supplying two quarts of never-ready-no-vap and a set of mud-hooks, of which Mrs. Appleyard has since lost three. She knows the butcher can't be uneasy about his bill, because he sent not only a succulent turkey, but also a gaily illuminated bit of parchment, hoping they were pleased with his services. The Appleyards take this opportunity to assure him that they are, and also that they will be in the market for a tip of the sirloin, weighing about seven and a half pounds, cut from a nice heavy steer, just as soon as they get through the turkey soup stage. In the midst of this era of good feeling, when even the hardware man saluted Mrs. Appleyard with such a magnificently painted bunch of mistletoe that she feels shy about trying to exchange that splendid barometer for a sanitary garbage receiver, there is one crumpled rose leaf. Right in the heart of the Christmas mail, without so much as a sprig of holly on it, was a card from the library remarking in the tersest way that the books she borrowed in November were now liable to a fine of 56 cents. In her first moment of irritation, she decided not to let them put up that statue of Mr. Appleyard, or even a bronze tablet. However, we have not written of this disturber of filing systems to any purpose if we have given the impression that she has much leisure for harboring grudges. After a brief spasm of planning to get even with them by becoming a librarian after all, she puts the card on the mantelpiece among the other gems of the season. Ah, well, quoth Mrs. Appleyard, hunting for her pocketbook, into each life some rain must fall. Unquoth. 2. Shopping Late Mrs. Appleyard knows perfectly well that she ought to shop early for Christmas. She knows that it is only common sense to buy presents early, choosing them according to their usefulness, wrap them up at her convenience, mail them shortly after July 4th, and be sure of waking brisk and active on Christmas morning with a clear conscience and unruffled temper. Yet somehow, unless she joins in the last-minute bustle and jostle, unless she buys at least one present that is fascinating, frivolous, and beyond her means— for her, it just isn't Christmas. A few years ago, there was started a society for the suppression of useless giving. It did its work so well that it vanished, leaving, according to Mrs. Appleyard, a sensible but dull world behind it. She likes to think of the days when a young bride's first act on going to housekeeping was to gild three broom handles, cover the lid of a butter box with green velvet, edge it with yellow fringe, and thus create what the furniture trade now chastely calls an occasional table. You could paint bulrushes on a mirror, too, or pond lilies. Strange and wonderful things could be done with milkweed. There were magazines that told you how, in case your natural ingenuity failed. In those days, presents had to be useless to be acceptable. Of course, there was no objection to finding some use for them if you could, but in the bric-a-brac era, a useful present implied that you couldn't buy the thing for yourself. And that was a deadly insult. 
Somehow it has ceased to be one. The possibility of affronting her friends and relations was not Mrs. Appleyard's worry this year, as she hurried past one red and silver and green window after another. Darling Clarabelle says dolls are babyish. I'll have to give the one I got her to someone else. That comes of shopping early. Now, what shall I get for the br- the dear little thing? Perhaps she needs a cigarette case? She's seven. Horace? Horace wants neckties. He said so. But he says the ones he got last year were lousy. Christmas dogs, he called them. It would serve him right if I bought that one, with the petunias on it. I wonder if Bertha Tremaine means to give me anything this year. She had a meaning look in her eye the third time she told me how much she was doing for the Greeks. Well, I can keep it. A folding card table always comes in handy. I can lend it to the church. In spite of such ripples in her stream of consciousness, Mrs. Appleyard took time to be glad that she does not need to ruin her eyesight at midnight by embroidering pallid violets on a whisk-broom holder or making a glove case by punching holes in linen and then filling them up again with spiderwebs. She is glad that anything is acceptable, from lipsticks to lingerie, fur coats to frying pans, caviar to collar buttons. She likes to think of Serena Brown, the president of the Overbrook Hill Garden Club, whose husband gave her a cord of manure for Christmas. Serena rejoiced in its fragrance, thinking of it later as it transformed into lilies and roses. Practically, Adam had set it with flowers. He apologized for not wrapping his present up in tissue paper and red ribbon, but Serena refused to see anything unromantic in it. Anyway, he had thoughtfully decorated it with a sprig of mistletoe. He realized that a present without either an air of mystery or a touch of decoration, lacks that dash of sentiment that even in a practical age we still demand. American Enterprise has tied a ribbon around refrigerators, wrapped tire chains in holly-papered boxes, swathed toothbrushes in gold cellophane. But for some reason no one has taken up the idea of fertilizer trimmed with mistletoe. It is a pity, for there is something substantial and sensible about such a gift. Mrs. Appleyard heard of one man who took his wife's car to the filling station Christmas morning and had some of the free air put in the tires. He is unmarried just at present. Mrs. Appleyard has his address in case anyone wants it. She plunged into a revolving door. They get going faster and faster at Christmas time. Someone dove into it with her. Luckily, the newcomer was thin. She and Mrs. Appleyard filled the compartment solid so they were able to slow the door down, (laughs) thus saving the life of a little old lady carrying a small pair of skis and giving a lot of innocent pleasure to those who saw Mrs. Appleyard emerge on the other side. She makes a business of slowing down doors at Christmas time. She is not a Girl Scout, but that is no reason for not acting as a break for a revolving door if that is your talent. Smug people with their presents all in cold storage miss half the fun, she thought as she adjusted her hat and waded into the scuffle. The shop was a dazzle of light and color, pleasantly warm and stuffy after the raw chill outside. The air was full of exciting smells. She fought her way past the perfume counter, burying her nose in her collar. Farther on, new blankets, new sheets, new bolts of silk all gave off their clean scent. The luggage section was so agreeably pungent that she paid twice as much as she had planned for Hugh's new kit bag. 
Nearby, in the fur department, salesmen trod silently across plush carpets through an atmosphere rich with moth flakes and refinement. Even on Christmas Eve, fur salesmen do not forget their dignity. The most condescending of them all, a kind of bishop among furriers, condescended sufficiently to say that the coat she and Sally had looked at the other day was now reduced in price. It was nice of him to mention such a sordid subject, Mrs. Appleyard thought, for it evidently gave him pain, and she could see that he hated to part with the coat. However, she bought it. She had meant to the moment she had seen Sally's eyelashes flutter over it. She had resisted the camera for Stan when she went up the escalator. It was a wonderful camera. It would do everything except paste the pictures in a book. She bought it as she came down. Stan would get it by New Year's, she explained to herself guiltily, and plunged down to a floor where the smells were equally stimulating. In the space of a few hundred feet, Mrs. Appleyard's nose detected popcorn, warm fur balsam, narcisse noir, hot dogs with mustard relish, french fried scallops, phonograph records, and saltwater taffy. Radios blatted cheerfully, drowning the sound of tired shuffling feet and the murmur of weary voices. People talk to themselves a good deal on Christmas Eve, and sometimes to Mrs. Appleyard. She learns interesting things about their home life, and has acquired an impression, of course on insufficient evidence, that there is a lot of happiness and kindness blowing about the world that does not get into official statistics. Still, not everyone is in a happy mood. "'Where did I put it? Oh, where did I put it?' inquired a distracted lady whose gray hair hung in strings under her ancient velvet hat. She seemed to be addressing her remarks to an electric washer, which went on whirling suds about with heartless indifference. Another scanned a tattered slip of paper and murmured hopelessly, "'Chafing dish, Aunt Abigail, Howard socks size eleven, or was that Chester? Grace hates peach panties!' A small mother lugged a baby almost as big as herself. He was sound asleep, and his white boots dangled limply from his pink leggings. She kept right on talking to him. He was called Toots, or sometimes Donald after his grandfather. Others were not asleep. Far from it. The toy department echoed with their wails. Yells, too. Also, chuckles of pure joy. Who has seen Christmas whose angles have not been endangered by a kitty car shaped like an airplane? Who has not stood spellbound while the electric train clicks merrily out of the tunnel? Who has not had Mickey Mouse balloons exploded in her face? Not Mrs. Appleyard, certainly. She looked a little disapprovingly at the grandmothers. She could tell them by their expressions of fond foolishness for what seemed to be very average children. Mrs. Appleyard's grandchildren, if they had existed, would have been infinitely superior and at home in bed. Aside from this, she approved of everything. She liked the woman, rigid-looking when seen from behind, who turned out to have a smile on her face, a wreath of pine and red berries over her arm, a weary paper bag with a large toy lamb breaking through it under the other, and a spare hand to give to a tear-stained urchin who had lost his mother. The gap between him and his mother was not large, and it was quickly bridged. The small boy received a good shaking and felt better at once. 
There was a big man with a walrus mustache who stood helplessly at the stocking counter, trying to decide between sunset glow and rosy beige. Mrs. Appleyard was swept past him without finding which he chose. She had taken a great liking to him. She even liked the pushing. Christmas pushing is good-natured. People who would scowl at having their elbows joggled on other days submit to having their feet stepped on with urbanity. Mrs. Appleyard saw a pink-faced old gentleman's square-topped hat knocked off by a refractory pair of ski poles. His arms were full of many-angled packages, but he put them all down, picked up his hat, and turning to the owner of the ski poles, who was also carrying a birdcage, a lampshade, and a small tin pail that Mrs. Appleyard instantly diagnosed as goldfish, smiled and wished him a Merry Christmas. So don't blame her for believing in miracles. She had a private one of her own. All the children but Stan had come home for Christmas. He was too far away. The others were waiting for her now with the car on Park Street. She hurried toward it because she was later than she had said. The big box with the coat in it and the clumsy bundle that was the kit bag took some maneuvering through the crowd. She managed them both, however, and did not even drop any of the smaller packages. Not even the waistcoat buttons for Mr. Appleyard. But when she arrived, panting slightly and with her hat over one eye, there was no car there. Or at least no dusty car that might be either a green or gray, depending to whether you were an optimist or not. The street was filled solid with cars that had been polished for Christmas. It was a handsome sight, and the state house looked very well, too, with its Christmas lights. But Mrs. Appleyard's feet hurt too much by this time for her to be really appreciative of the sights of her fair city. Even the lighted Christmas tree on the common began to look tawdry instead of gay. I thought beauty was in the eye of the beholder, but I believe it's really in the feet, Mrs. Appleyard murmured to herself. Just then she saw the car. It came round the corner of Tremont Street just as the light changed with a fine free swing that made Mrs. Appleyard think, Sicily's driving. And so she was. All roads are alike to Sicily. Tom was still clutching the door handle as they whizzed up to the curb. Mrs. Appleyard threw him a glance of sympathy. She assumed that it would be welcome. Sicily, like her father, was a very skillful driver. Tom got out, saying, Sit in front. I'll get the back. I'll put the packages in the trunk. It's not quite full yet. Somehow, the car was fuller than it should have been. Not with bundles. Mr. Appleyard and Hugh and Sally were sitting on the back seat with packages around their feet. Mysterious, last-minute packages. But that was hardly enough to account for the fact that they all looked like cats who had just eaten a cage full of canaries, with perhaps a few lovebirds thrown in. Sally's face, the most impish of the lot, had no business to be so high up in the air. She was sitting on someone, and that someone was... Here Mrs. Appleyard began to hunt for her handkerchief. Yes, it was Stan's face that emerged from behind Sally. Stan, who was supposed to be in Texas painting a mural in a post office. Mrs. Appleyard had spoken crossly about the government only that morning and about Texas. At this moment, everyone from the president down seemed suddenly worthy of a halo. And Texas, what a wonderful state it must be that had sent Stan, 
brown, red-cheeked with his sunburned hair falling down over his forehead. His blue eyes crinkled in the smile that was only Stan's. Home for Christmas. Take mine, said Mr. Appleyard. It's clean. What? thought Mrs. Appleyard happily. Does a woman do whose husband doesn't carry a clean handkerchief for emergencies? How wonderful men are. Kleenex is absolutely no good at a time like this. It was a miracle, Stan was saying. I had just twenty minutes to catch the plane. Yes, it was a miracle. Mrs. Appleyard is sure of that. The End I am not one of those people who boxes everything up and carefully labels it, but it never did occur to me to even think that maybe the people who say they cleverly box things up and label them don't. Until I read Mrs. Appleyard, (laughs) where she clearly is thinking that because she's saying she never even asked to check. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Also, I really loved the Christmas shopping's part, not just because of Stan coming home miraculously, though that was, of course, wonderful, but because of Mrs. Appleyard's take on all the seasonal shopping. And I have been one of those people who've always done a lot of shopping on the internet. I hate malls. I'm not fond of shopping. And I'm certainly not fond of giant crowds. But I think this year, in order to catch or retain some of the seasonal spirit, the way Mrs. Appleyard was looking at it, I'm going to venture out to a mall a couple of times because you can't tell what I'll find there that I'm not finding on the internet. So thank you, Mrs. Appleyard. Now, I hope everybody has enjoyed this book as much as I have. I have Thanksgiving tomorrow, so I'm making pies and doing things ahead of time. If you also have Thanksgiving tomorrow, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And if you do not have Thanksgiving, if you're from Canada where you had it last month or somewhere else where you don't have it, I hope you're having a wonderful time with your family this week. Because that is the essence of the basis of what we're thankful for, right? Who did I hear saying it was a quasi-religious holiday? Oh, Bryce Fuquay on his Thanksgiving show from Music from 100 Years Ago. And he was kind of explaining what Thanksgiving is for people who aren't from the U.S. And I love the way he said it. He said, it's quasi-religious. We're thankful. That's all we need to be. We don't have to be thankful to any particular deity. We're just all thankful. And I like that because I think we're all thankful for something in our lives. One of the things I'm thankful for, of course, is you coming by to listen. We all know, I say it all the time, I wouldn't be reading these things out loud and enjoying them if not for you. So thank you. I am thankful for you. I will talk to you again soon. Have a great week. Bye-bye.